Ladies and gentlemen, it is great to have you tonight. I know it is not the usual um, host that you have here, main host, Landon. He's busy in California, saving America in the usual ways he does. But forget Landon. We've got three other gentlemen here filling in those big gaps that Landon, tall, lanky man leaves. We have Matt Jefferson Davis Schultz. We Jefferson have- Davis. <laughs> <laughs> we have Ross Magic Johnson here, as usual, and no of course, magic. Mike Abraham Lincoln <laughs> Schaefer, and here in spirit is Landon Ulysses S. Grant Free. Um, the speaker Could you literally not think of anyone else for me? Stonewall or any flight. <laughs> Ross George um, Mead. Come on, somebody. Speech, speech we're doing tonight is the Gettysburg Address, uh, 1863, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have gone on a little bit of a journey with us uh, in order to get to this particular speech. What does that journey look like? It's the story of America. We've hit on Washington's first inaugurational speech, setting America up for success. The do's, the don'ts, our first and only president of no political party. Republican? No. Democrat? No. He can't be put in the box. Then we went on to Thomas Jefferson, friend of freedom? Of course. Author of the Declaration of Independence. Foe of freedom? Of course. He owned 150 people. Hey, can we have a citation on that? Steve, the producer, hash, alternative facts, hashtag, I think the kids call it. We danced across the decades of the early 1800s, back when Landon did this podcast with us, hearing from such speakers as William Henry Harrison. I had to look up what he said because, like all Americans, I don't even remember us talking about him. Um, he was the guy who died, sadly, short, uh, 30 days after, uh, taking office here. Uh, in that same episode, we heard from Andrew, the Indian fighter, Jackson, and of course, not enough of Frederick Douglass. The first time that Americans realized African Americans were naturally better at being cool than white people. Hey, hit up some of Frederick Douglass speeches on your own time. And that brings us back to this episode. So, coming in from the corner that is red, white, and blue, the rail splitter, the great emancipator, standing at six feet, five inches, a buck forty, a win-loss record of two and oh, when running for president, hailing from Ross Massey Johnson's Illinois capital city, Springfield, the man who need not be named, the man who proves that melancholics can become the world's most powerful person while acting like they don't care, the one, the only, Ross, who is it? I believe we're talking about Abraham Lincoln. That's right, Abraham Lincoln. Um, Matt Jefferson Davis, what number president was he? I don't know, but you practiced that really, really Pro- well, Mike. Proves my point. Jeff Davis. 16. Six, 16. Three presidents after Millard Fillmore. 
<laughs> okay, ladies and folks, we're talking the Gettysburg Address. Before we start hand-waving here, figuring out what exactly we're even talking about, let's go to the speech itself. It's 1863. It's Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Abraham Lincoln takes the stage after a two-hour speech from Mr. Edmund Everett. Folks are busy getting their cameras ready, one of these new technological pieces of equipment, and that tall man takes his step onto the stage after this gruesome battle where tens of thousands of Americans were killed. And he says, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation, so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln, folks. Okay, um, 150-some years later, hopefully y'all at home remember reading that in school, collecting some thoughts, some knee-jerk reactions. Maybe it wasn't too many thoughts, because, hey, that's just how most people work with old things. Let's kind of set the stage. Just think about this in this broader context. Opening the floor for discussion here from some of my cabinet members. What's going on? in the war at this point. What's going on with the North? What's going on with the South? What's going on with the battles? Who's winning? Who's losing? Who's bloodier? Who's cowardice? What do you boys got for me? Well, I believe the war had been going on for some time at this point. And if I am correct in saying, I think this was uh, Lee's second kind of campaign to invade the Northern states um, to take the battle out of the South, if you will. Um, so what's going on in the war before Gettysburg, I'm pretty sure Lee had won some pretty significant battles kind of leading up to this point, um, kind of seen as an invincible general done very well. Um, so it's not that like the South had total control or anything like that, but I would say leading up to Gettysburg, a lot of confidence on the Southern side. 
Yeah, no Chancellorville was a big one. Um, I've heard it referred to as the perfect battle by uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, famous for Stonewall Jackson's uh, risky flanking maneuver that um, won them the battle. Uh, but I guess his late return from that battle uh, also won him some friendly fire and uh, lost him his arm prior to his uh, life about eight days later. Um, but, yeah, I know Chancellorville was a big one leading up to there. Um, momentum was uh, – Sounds like mostly with the South at that point. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, been quite a lot of back and forth at this point. I think um, 17,000 casualties for the good guys at Chancellorville, 13,000 for the bad. Um, obviously, casualties includes killed and wounded, but I am sure it was way over a few thousand that were killed. And, I mean – just to, like, think about that for a second, the uh, Iraq War, America's longest-lasting war. I'm some numbers from Steve here. Uh, Iraq War, number of Americans killed. Mention the Iraqi people, of course. But 4,000, 4,400. Obviously, every single one of those were tragic, for sure. Um but one battle was presumably a lot more than that versus the 20-some years now of the Iraq War. Crazy. Just put, puts things in perspective. It's like, it's like Russia in World War II. Remember that one, guys? Gosh, it's like they lost the whole country. Crazy. Okay. What, what, else, what else do we know going on there? So we're still pre the battle, though. Sure. Yeah. I'm I'm an eighth I'm an eighth grade student. I'm I'm just thinking about smoking dope after school. Make me care about the Gettysburg Address. We're, it's, it's like, it's like I'm a teacher. The kids didn't study their notes and I'm having to just animate myself to bring life to this lesson. We're two years into the war, right? I kind of, I looked up an interesting win law. I came up with a little win loss record for the good guys and the bad guys. According to Wikipedia, who of course are according to other sources. 100 and 45 official conclusive battles up to the point of Gettysburg. Um, obviously not all wins are equal, but I kind of did just a quick little wiki count, seeing how many of the good guys won and how many of the bad guys. United States, guys, you guys want to take a guess how many battles of those 145 did the red, white, and blue win? 70. I, wait, wait, wait. One out of one what? How many battles? 145. I would guess 60. Yeah, both reasonable guesses. 88 USA. Hmm. Rebs, it's not 145 minus 88 for whoever can do that quickly in your head. 57. Because um, there were some, you know, that were like a tie or something like that. But 
Anyway, we did we did pretty solid with that. So 88 wins to something significantly less than that. Um, let me throw out little fun facts because hey, it's always hard figuring out where fun facts go. Pope Pius the Ninth received a visit from one of the Confederate ambassadors who was not Catholic, nor was Matt's namesake Catholic. Um, Pius actually insisted that the Confederacy promise gradual emancipation, um, presumably if uh, he was to recognize it as an international power or something. Prussia donated several officers. I could not gather exactly why, but they did. Um, the South was, it thought very highly of its cotton. Um, maybe a little bit too highly. Maybe if it had been a highly perishable product, um, they could have been a little bit more relied upon or needed. Um, but from what I was reading, Britain, other European countries had, they just knew how to manage their continent. They had a built up big enough supply that they were able to not be as concerned with, uh, reduced cotton shipments during the war. Um, Confederate diplomats, diplomats described as inexperienced and clumsy. Um, here is, oh, I enjoyed this fact. The Confederacy, so Abraham Lincoln was criticized for suspending habeas corpus, which I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but something to the effect of having to a right to like a trial and stuff like that, right? The Confederacy, Matt, did you have something? Oh. Oh, no. Um, the Confederacy suspended habeas corpus twice. Another fun fact from the war. The Confederacy started the draft. And so the North um, started the draft in response to that. So, yeah, thank the Confederacy for starting the draft. Um, the Let's see. Um, but, 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 make sure we remember this for later. 1880s first rebel monument went up in Gettysburg, actually. So anyway, that's just a little bit of fun fact. Setting us up for the war. U.S. is winning. A lot of lives lost and a lot of interesting tidbits. Have I, any of you guys been to the Gettysburg? A long time ago. Yeah. That's probably a trick question because we all went there together. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering where you were going to go with that, Mike, but all right. (laughs) Right, right, yes. Um, To put some interesting texture to that uh, commentary, I first, in response to Ross, remembered Ross, and then about nine seconds later, I remember Matt being there. It was a good trip. <laughs> Glad it was memorable, even if nine seconds later. Can we, uh, can we hear a little bit from our audience why we were out at Gettysburg? 
Yeah, so we have a friend, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Father now, Daniel McShane, who is studying in seminary to become a priest um, out in Maryland. So we went out to visit him because um, we were all had graduated uh, college at that point. And that was a great trip um, to kind of make it make it a little not hit home more, but just to try to get a little deeper into Gettysburg. We spent a lot of time there. I remember we drove around and it wasn't just like listen to the cassette tape. We would actually stop at each point and get out and talk about what happened here. What do you think the Confederate troops were thinking? What do you think the think the Union troops were thinking? And try to kind of get a sense of what did it look like? What did it feel like? Um, which worked for like 75% of the tour. And then by the last 25%, I remember I was pretty tired. But um, I also remember I think we read some speeches by different figures, um, different figures, the major players at Gettysburg, I guess, went like kind of at different places where they where they their moments took place. Do you guys remember what speeches Father Danny assigned to you? I just happened to have it right here. No Mike. way. Holy smokes. Whip that right out. I read a letter from Robert E. Lee to his wife following the Confederate loss. Could you could you share a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I just happened to have it. So just to, to give it a little context. So the South did lose the battle. I know we're not quite there yet. But um, it wasn't, at least by Lee, immediately seen as a, as a devastating loss. But um, anyway, so I'll just read a little tidbit. The consequences of war are horrid enough at best, surrounded by all the ameliorations of civilization and Christianity. I'm very sorry for the injuries done, the family at Hickory Hill, and particularly that our dear old Uncle Williams in his 80th year should be subjected to such treatment. Though we cannot help it and must endure it. You will, however, learn before this reaches you that our success at Gettysburg was not so great as reported. In fact, that we failed to drive the enemy from his position and that our army withdrew to the Potomac. Had the river not unexpectedly risen, all would have been well with us. But God in his all-wise providence willed otherwise, and our communications have been interrupted and almost cut off. And then he says some other just kind of not boring stuff, but particular stuff. Um, and it's interesting. He, ends on, he says at the end, I trust that a merciful God, our only hope and refuge, will not desert us in this hour of our need. And will deliver us by his almighty hand that the whole world may recognize his power and all hearts be lifted up in adoration and praise of his unbounded loving kindness. We must, however, submit to his almighty will, whatever that may be. May God guide and protect us all is my constant prayer. So anyway, that's a little excerpt from a letter he wrote to his wife. But obviously things didn't go well for them. But I think in the immediate aftermath, at least, he did not view it as like a. I think uh, we'll probably talk later. I mean, Gettysburg is kind of seen as a turning point in the Civil War, but at least in the immediate aftermath, I don't think that's necessarily how Lee viewed it. I like that line, ameliorizations of civilization and Christianity. Mm, man. Um, Matt, Ross, do you have? Do you remember your speech? So, well, I was gonna say, ask Ross if he had, because I know there was like a whole like paper thing that Danny made. I don't, I, I remember the, so I remember my speech was a priest who was on the field, like on the battlefield, um, of Gettysburg, like, I guess, tending to, uh, the soldiers and whatnot. Um, I can't say I recall like specifics, but you found it. I don't have yours. Oh, I thought you were um, that up. No, so. I don't have, I have several, but I do not have that one. I remember you reading it. It was pretty cool. I think there's a statue there if I remember correctly. 
Yeah. Um, but I don't have, um, I don't have that speech. Yeah. I'm interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if, so I don't know if Danny knew this at the time, but at the time I was considering the priesthood. Um, eventually I did go into seminary and I remember reading that or like just having that speech assigned to me. I wasn't, I didn't know. I can't remember if Danny knew I was thinking about it or not, but, uh, I don't know. I remember that was kind of like a little like goosebumpy type of thing. Spinning. What does this mean? But, uh, but yeah, I ended up going to the seminary, not strictly because of that or anything, but I, I do remember, yeah, having like a lot of feelings, I guess, uh, just reading that speech. Um, do we have any numbers on how long was the Battle of Gettysburg? Uh, how many lives were lost, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Why were both armies even there? Uh, getting away from generalities that, well, you know, one side saw it as a good strategy. Uh, what, what do we got on that, folks? Yeah, so I got a couple things. Um, so, kind of like we said, um, Lee had kind of, and, some confidence there after the Battle of Chancellorsville, which I believe you could correct me. That's the that was the one where he it was such an impressive like strategic point by Lee, I think, where he uh, defeated a lot of Union soldiers. Like he was outnumbered and still won and got a good win. Um, but anyway, I don't think there's like one defining reason why, at least I know of, why Lee and the South decided to kind of do this second campaign to invade the North, but they have kind of several reason, like, you can kind of look up their several thoughts about why they would have wanted to do it. Um, so first of all, just a lot of fighting had been done in the South, um, so to try to get the fighting away from the South and into the North, um, kind of is just as a discouragement for the Northern forces. You know, it's obviously a lot, you know, I mean, it hits home a little harder when you're literally fighting on your doorstep. Um trying to force Lincoln into some negotiations if they can win some decisive battles in the North and potentially in the war. Um, other people kind of, there's thoughts that it's kind of, it was to try to convince other nations to recognize the Confederacy. Um, like the morale was high. It seemed like a good point. Um, and also just, uh, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but uh, there was a lot of Union forces sieging uh, Vicksburg and it, they, there was thought that maybe it could have drawn some forces away um, from Vicksburg. So all kinds of reasons why, the South wanted to invade the North, um, yeah, leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg, and then and the Northerns, the North's kind of, I guess, response to that. This is kind of where the the two forces met. So they, right? So the, so the South, for whatever reason, is starting this campaign. Um, they meet in Gettysburg. Was this, I guess, fill in, like, how big were the sides? How many troops from each side were there? Like, just, yeah, I guess a little bit more detail would be nice just that. to kind of get the grandeur and size. I got that. We got um, on the Yankees, 85,000. Uh, on the Rebs, 65,000. So 85,000 versus 65,000. Um, That's a lot real, of people. Real quick, can I just, I, mean, I almost want to do, so I, I looked up the population of the United States at this time was 31 million. That's like a pretty big percent of the population are in this battle. Yeah, so relative to like today's population, that's about 10% of today's population. So that would be like 
150,000 versus 850,000 in today's as a percent population. Crazy. One rebel regiment completely killed in this battle. Crazy. Like 100%? 100%. Man, that would be terrifying. My memories of Gettysburg, I obviously went there once with you guys um, and once with my parents uh, when I was a senior in high school. And I don't know how this compares to other battlefields, especially those from that time period. But I remember feeling like it was very spread out, like it had a large variety of topography. Um a lot of huge boulders, some wood cover, some open area, and I don't know. I don't know necessarily what that means, but there's it, it just has that sort of uh, texture to it, um, I suppose, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I remember just walking through the field and thinking, like, what it, if I was just here, like, whatever position I happen to be in, like, what the hell would I do? You know, just because, like, a large portion of it is just wide, wide open. And, yeah, I mean, it's not like you've – I mean, I don't know what the, the the gun capability was at the time. But, yeah, I mean, it just – I remember that was the first time I'd been on, like, a real battlefield, at least that I remember. I, I think I visited something like that when I was young and didn't give a care. But, yeah, I just – that you know, the humanity of that situation really struck me just seeing it. I, okay, if you took us right now and put us in that environment, like, you know, 10 minutes before battle, you give us all the gear, we put on the cotton outfits, wool outfits, we'd be terrified. We'd be a bunch of Nancys. We might even run away, God forbid. But I think if, we were had grown up in that environment you know understood sort of how things evolve i'd like to think that we'd hold our own um my hypothesis is that obviously in the environment that we're in now you know we we take virtue pretty seriously we take strength seriously courage you know so relative to our like peers today you know we like we score pretty high in those things not compared to your average like pioneer but relative to our peers so i guess what i'm getting at is if we had grown up then we'd probably be generals (laughs) 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 but yeah Uh, i mean what's that Oh yeah, with well, that. I don't know. One, one last, <laughs> one last bit to put a fine point on that. I remember that's related. I remember asking my grandpa Schaefer, um, who fought in World War II, when he was, dra- yeah, he was drafted. Um, I was like, Grandpa, like, were you were you scared going off the war? And obviously that's different than like right before a battle, but. He said, uh, no, I mean, you know, everyone was doing it, so you didn't think too much of it. So I think that, you know, when when everyone is doing it, when everyone you know in your, your world is in the space of a battle, I, I think that makes things, you know, a little bit less intimidating than we might imagine, you know, sitting here with our whiskey and, and such. Yeah, I yeah, know it does something to your heart, I'd imagine. 
Yeah. So with uh, so we've got eighty five thousand on the north. How many again on the the south? Sixty five thousand. Sixty five thousand. And we're in the the early part of July, eighteen sixty three. What happens next? How does the battle unfold? What are the big moves that are made? It's hard to say any of the days like weren't major, obviously, because I mean there's fighting and death and going on. But at least to over, to not get too, I guess, particular. Like I think day one, I don't want to say the word jockeying for position, but the South is pushing into Northern forces and trying to drive them back and out of Gettysburg. And I think overall did a pretty good job. But and we can talk about it more. But maybe to some lack of aggressiveness by certain people or poor leadership by certain uh confederates they they kind of allowed the union to set up a very strong defensive position um so something we'll probably talk about um a little bit is just part of why people speculate why maybe the south lost is kind of the performance of general lee's subordinates um so kind of some of his direct the people kind of still high up in the confederate army but that had to make some decisions underneath of lee didn't do a very good job um, so a lot of people actually think that had Stonewall Jackson not died after Chancellorsville, that the South could have won at Gettysburg because of um, Lee was kind of known for making, I guess you could say generalizations, but like kind of general orders and leaving it then up to the subordinates. And whereas Stonewall Jackson was known for being quite aggressive with those and doing very well and was very successful. Uh, uh, so I think it was Cemetery Hill was like a ridge south of town. And Lee said something to the fact, I don't have the quote in front of me, but like take it if it I don't, he didn't say take it if it makes sense, but if the opportunity arises, something the effect of that. And his general said, no, I don't think we should. The Union forces are too strong there, and that let them set up this super strong position, um, where a lot of people speculate that had Stonewall Jackson still been alive, he would have, he would have taken Cemetery Hill at the end of day one. But anyway, so day one, I think, was a lot of getting the South kind of driving at the North, but the North setting up solid defensive battlefield positions. I'm looking at a map of day two of the battle here. Man, we were surrounded by the rebels. I got nothing else to add on that, but now you at least know we were surrounded on day two. We were surrounded. Emphasis on the we. <laughs> yeah, by the way, we're all on the northern side of this war. <laughs> if, <laughs> um... If, there, there's a headstone. I know I told you guys this, but I have not told our listeners. Um, there's a headstone right off of Highway 136 between uh, Interstate 70 and uh, Charleston, Illinois. If you're next time you are on your way up to Fox Ridge State Park to go camping and you want to take the scenic route, um, head up Highway 136. There's a a neat little cemetery on your left, uh, about six miles south of Fox Ridge near Lincoln's father's home. And there's a headstone whose epitaph reads, a northern Yankee who helped save the Union. Oh, gosh. That's a great headstone. You guys remember me sharing that? No. I don't remember Really? You don't remember that? I've I heard you it. I've heard him say that at least three times. <laughs> I mean, it's a cool I, thing I to say. I think it's worth saying yeah, it at I least know. twice. So, I mean, 
<laughs> well, and then the third time was for our listeners. The fourth, well, this is the fourth time, so I mean, people have to kill at this point. Well, wait, I wasn't saying it for you. The third time is probably right. someone. <laughs> or I probably had a few, I had a couple too many beers, and, you know, I started getting a little more patriotic. <laughs> That's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we get out of this? We're surrounded on day two, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> what, did we, what did we do? <laughs> we need Steve here. Day three, Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> Uh, okay, Google image. Okay, we have Val Gettysburg first day. That's what came up first. Um, we are, we're surrounded. We're surrounded on the first day as well. We're surrounded on the first day. Um, we know we're surrounded on the second day. Come on, give me a third day. Or maybe the third day, like, hardly counts. Like, it ended at 1 a.m., and so they just never really... Oh my goodness. And you guys should check out this map. This one's labeled the Battle of Gettysburg, the Bloodshed of Gettysburg. I said we were surrounded in those other two references. This one, we are surrounded. Man, we were extraordinary. Are you looking at, is that like the fish hook or whatever? Is that the picture you're talking about? That was what one of the maps I was looking at. Um, the one I'm looking at now is the Bloodshed of Gettysburg.weebly.com. Hmm. That sounds just a lot like <laughs> bloodshed. I mean, when weep, I, I don't know what you said, but it sounded like weep. It just sounded sad. Yeah, we weebly. Oh, weebly. Sorry. All right. It sounds like we may or may not know how exactly we got out of it. <laughs> the important thing is that we did. The important thing is that we did. And so, what is what's the aftermath? The immediate aftermath. What, how, what did this do to springboard the union into glory and victory? Like, what? What's? Uh, yeah, I guess that that might well, be. We, well, we just can't just jump straight. We didn't even talk about Pickett's charge. We haven't talked about <laughs> anything. Well, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm There's three days. Let me manage the content. <laughs> you deliver the content. <laughs> So how do we get to FDR? What happened there? <laughs> hey, what's going on with Pickett's charge there? I like what I heard there. Let's let's put some meat in our in our bones. So day two didn't go as well as generally had wanted because you got to remember that the South is kind of on the offensive here. They had they were the ones invading the North. They were the ones that, as Mike has told us several times, had surrounded the Union troops. Um, so day two didn't go as planned. Again, some. Either I think people debate whether or not Lee should have taken more of a micromanaging strategy or just his subordinates didn't do a very good job. But I think some of his orders, like he wanted somebody to attack very early in the morning and got delayed by like a lot of hours, which, again, allowed the Union troops to set up stronger defensive positions. Um, I think his cavalry, I don't know if he's a general, but leader, a guy named Stewart, had gone really far north and didn't even get there till day three. So he didn't have Lee didn't have as much of the information. Um, that maybe he could have had. So he's attacking and it's just not the, again, it's, it's not able to kind of take over. So he kind of orders on the third day, which is, I believe, July 3rd, 1863, he orders what's known as Pickett's Charge, which was actually even in, in the moment, uh, controversial. I believe Longstreet, I think was his name, but one of the higher ups, still underneath Lee, but higher ups, Confederates didn't, he just didn't think it was a good idea. Um, but, Pretty much, he ordered a 
offensive maneuver. I'm trying to look up the numbers here, but it was led by a picket, a guy named Pickett, and they literally just charged at, they had to cross, I mean, I, you can see it when you're at Gettysburg, I think it's a couple hundred yards, um, and pretty much just charged at the, the Union forces, and that point was the furthest that's called the high water marks. That's the, that's the furthest, that's the deepest into the north, the south, um, the south ever got. Um, so the charge is named after Major General George Pickett, who was one, oh, he's one of the three generals who led the assault. Um, so Lee thought that there was a weak point there and they could break through. Um, obviously did not work. So I'm trying to look here. So General Pickett's charge looks like 10,000 men he sent, which seems, again, just massive amounts. They did a uh, kind of an artillery barrage to try to weaken the Union forces before they sent them all in. Um, yeah, in the force of Pickett's charge, they sent about 12,500 men. Um, though it was actually a – it wasn't a charge. They weren't running screaming. They were marching forward uh, and weren't supposed to charge, so they got a little bit closer. But still, just the fact, I mean, 12,000 men just start matching, marching across the battlefield to try to, to break through is pretty um, intimidating. I'm still looking up. I can't get how far they had to go, but it was quite a distance. So, I mean, I don't know if you'd say it's a suicide mission, but obviously it did not work. That was Pickett's charge. Based on the map I'm looking at, it looks about three quarters of a mile. So pretty good distance. So, I mean, talking about that, can you imagine, like, just, all right, Three quarters of a mile over, I mean, I wouldn't say flat ground, but I mean, you're well, I mean, they could have been shooting at you just to say, all right, go, let's go boys. Um, sounds pretty, pretty intense. Like it would have been hard to muster up the, the courage to just do that. Yeah. I mean, that's like a, what, eight minute walk or so March, whatever, you know, I don't know what pace they're going at, but like, right, yeah, it's about eight Some of these men of... might've also been fighting. I mean, I don't know the specific ones that were sent if they were there all three days or not, but I mean. That's yeah, it's not like you woke up fresh from eight hours of sleep, ate a healthy breakfast, drank a cup of coffee, and then got to do your eight minute walk. You know what I mean? Um, it would have been yeah quite <clears throat> i wonder I wonder how much the guys even knew what they were going into. you know, obviously we have this hindsight and you know can look at all the maps and such, but uh you know maybe uh you know what was better for that i I think. What I'd probably refer, yeah, it's obviously not knowing exactly what uh, I was going up against uh, in the given moment. But hmm. while uh, while the boys are kind of thinking so about the is, next, oh. this is the, I mean, so the conclusion of day three. So obviously, Pickett's charge doesn't go well. The South is not able to take it take Gettysburg and ends up having to retreat. Um, what what do you think Lincoln would have happened then immediately after? Just let him go home and hang out in the South? <laughs> Counterattack. Yeah, Counter that's a great question. What did Lincoln want? Um, I think Matt just told us. Well, I know, <laughs> counterattack. I know, I'm I'm feeding the drama. I'm feeding the drama, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how would you go, like, an enemy's running away, I mean, how do you go about chasing after them? Like, because how I'd imagine it is that, okay, that means you'd have to just keep chasing them or, like, I don't know, go to bed 
and they've been on the run for eight hours, and then you just chase after them harder. Okay, so yeah, so do you do you guys know what that counter attack looked like? I well, don't. There, there wasn't a major one, right? Wasn't that why Lincoln was upset? I'm looking up right now. So I'm pretty Falcons. sure, like, Meade me did not pursue, like, he, not that he, like, let him escape intentionally, but, like, Meade didn't go super aggressively after Lee following the Battle of Gettysburg, which allowed him to march back into the South with still a pretty good-sized army. And wasn't Lincoln pretty upset that he didn't, like, pretty aggressively go after him yeah i mean that definitely sounds familiar but gosh how can you blame the poor guy i mean you just had um how many people were where's our numbers here how many people just died um 51,000 23,000 union deaths 23,000 confederates uh no those were casualties um, 3,400 killed. Gosh, man, that was just to endure all of that and then go and chase after more blood. <sighs> that is a tall order for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Speaking of just kind of, I guess, before we get too much more into the speech and the effects of the aftermath, like Lincoln's speech itself, but to kind of... Obviously, we're not super good at the Battle of Gettysburg, but we have we know our stuff. But the Battle of Little Round Top, which I think was day two, the day that we couldn't think of what happened. Um, I think that's a pretty well-known, famous battle. Um, I think from a little bit of reading I did, and I think there's, again, a little bit of debate over how important it was. I think some people think it was a crucial point of the battle. Other people think not so much because it even had the South won that, that part of it. It wouldn't have had a huge effect. But anyway. Um, there was a little round top. Um, I think it was the Western part of this air, the, the line. I hope that's right. Um, is just a famous battle where it was very fierce. A lot of fighting went on. So I have, we've talked a lot about, just you know, if we had been there, what it would have been like, and it would have been hard to, you know, march across the field and do pickets charge. I have a little excerpt, um, about from, this is firsthand accounts, gentlemen, from the battle of little round top. So, um, we got a guy named Joseph Chamberlain. He was kind of one of the union leaders at Little Round Top. So here is, um, yeah, I'll just read it. As the 20th Maine Center began to break and give ground in the face of the Alabama Regiment's onslaught, 25-year-old Car- Colonel or Sergeant Tozier stood firm, remaining upright as southern bullets buzzed and snapped in the air around him. Tozier's personal gallantry in defending the 20th Maine's colors became the regimental rallying point for companies D, E, and F to retake the center. Were it not for Tozier's heroic stand, the 20th Maine would likely have been beaten at that decisive point in the battle. When their ammunition had almost run out, Chamberlain decided to fix bayonets and charge down into the two Alabama regiments. Chamberlain, whose right foot had been pierced by a shell fragment, limped along the regimental line yelling out instructions. Chamberlain ordered a right-wheel maneuver with one word, bayonets. Chamberlain led the men down the slope when the enemy was only 30 yards away. 
First Lieutenant Holman S. Melker broke a momentary hesitation by running down the slope screaming, Come on! Come on, boys! Chamberlain seemed to have been blessed with both good timing and luck. He not only made the right command decisions, but also managed to survive. Blah, blah, blah. An Alabama soldier twice failed to pull the trigger because he had second thoughts about killing him, and then a pistol aimed by a Southern officer misfired a few feet from his face. So, anyway, I just thought that was powerful. The fact that, I mean, 30 yards is not very far. And you have literally an army full of people looking at you. I mean, you can see people at 30 yards. I mean, trying to kill you, and your response is to sprint at them yelling, come on, boys. That takes a little bit. Of, that takes some balls. I'll say it. I would like to have think that would have been me. But I probably would have been hesitating. And I know it. I remember hearing stories in the Civil War in particular about like it wasn't just like your 18 to 22 year old men who were fighting like you had 40 year olds and you had 14 year olds, you know, which just, yeah, all of these stories just with that in mind, too, like it's just like, holy smokes. Or even like when you or even like Mike, when you said, like, you know, kind of not knowing what's about to happen. If your commander is yelling bayonets, I think we got an idea of what's about to happen here. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, just to kind of, yeah, pro- probably a very ugly day to have actually been there. Okay. Battle ends. Now, it's time for some branding. They started in 1863, and we're still doing it today. Let's make sure that history remembers this the right way. Let's make sure that Twitter gets it right. Um, so, Lincoln was not the only speaker that day at Gettysburg. Who else was speaking that day? Ross, were you trying to say something? Because you're muted. Well, Lincoln probably had, like, the longest, most center speech of the day, right? Had to have been. Had to have been. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the, the, I don't know, keynote speaker, if you will, uh, was actually not Lincoln. So the Gettysburg what? Address. I know. Uh, jaw dropper. Um, so the keynote or the main speech, so the Gettysburg Address, so to speak, was supposed to be, and I mean, it was delivered by a man named Edward Everett. Um, so Edward Everett um, at the time was known as a just a, a very prestigious public speaker. Um, throughout his life, he'd held a number of uh positions that I think if any one of us held any one of these positions for any period of time, we would count our lives crazy successful. And he held all of these, uh, including president of Harvard, ambassador to the United Kingdom, uh, U.S. House uh, representative for the state of Massachusetts, the governor of Massachusetts, and the secretary of state. Fairly accomplished man. Um, when he taught at Harvard for a while. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of his students who apparently uh, idolized Everett for his speaking eloquence. Um, 
At the time of Gettysburg, he was retired from public life and politics, um, but he was still on the speaking circuit. Um, his last run or last major run in politics was actually he was the vice president for the Constitutional Union Party uh, in the 19 I'm sorry, 1860 election. So this was during Lincoln's first election um, during which he had the famous Lincoln Douglas debates and all that. Um, so John Bell was the president on that ticket. Uh, Edward Everett, vice president. Um, Constitution Union Party was basically just keep the uh, United States a union at all costs. We're kind of wishy-washy on slavery, kind of, I don't know, compromising on that regard. Um, obviously, they lost. Lincoln won. Um, interesting note, during the campaign, Edward Everett said of Lincoln's speeches that he made during that campaign, quote, these speeches thus far have been the, of the most ordinary kind, destitute of everything, not merely felicity of grace, but of, per, of common pertinence. He is evidently a person of inferior cast of character, wholly une, unequal to the crisis. That was 1860. Um, fast forward. Uh, he... Edward Everett ended up supporting Lincoln in the 1864 election. Um, ended up being much more of a, uh, yeah, I guess much more supportive of abolition and things like that. Um, so at this time he gave, uh, he was docked to be the main speaker. His speech uh, was similar in Lincoln's in terms of trying to emphasize the historical significance. He made comparisons to ancient Greece and some of the battles there and, you know, their struggle for democracy. Um, also emphasized reverence for the dead. Uh, there's a slight difference in length of their speeches. So Edward Everett's was 13,000 words, over 13,000 words, I think 13,600 something. Um, Abraham Lincoln's was, I think, something like 170-something words. I don't know. Very, very short. Um, in fact, Edward Everett's first sentence was about 20% of Lincoln's entire speech in terms of the number of words. Was it a run-on sentence? Sounds like it probably was. Um, so anyway, um, I read parts of his speech very – I mean – yeah, very well written, like very well. Uh, yeah, you can like imagine someone like delivering this with a lot of passion. Can you um, share a couple of the snippets? So I don't have them on hand, unfortunately. So we'll just cut that from the edited version. So mo moving forward, um, in the immediate aftermath, so the day after the speech, so Edward Everett would not have had a chance. This isn't Twitter where everyone reacts immediately. Sorry, right? when is the speech? How, so, how long after the war was the speech? You said the day after, but when oh, was yes, the speech? Yeah, so the speech was uh, November, shoot, what was the date? I can't remember the date. November 14th, I believe. Okay, so like four months, just over about, a little. Yeah, okay. about four months after the, the war. Um, I'm sorry, the battle. Um, so Edward Everett heard Lincoln's speech, obviously. So he, you know, Edward Everett delivers this two hour, 13,000 word thing. Abraham Lincoln comes up. Like Mike said, the people barely had time to get their cameras out before he sat down and delivered a speech that 
is infinitely more famous than Edward Everett's. And Everett responded before he ever got a chance to see any newspapers or anything like that. Uh, this isn't the Twitter zone um, where people react live and in color. He wrote uh, to Lincoln, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Um, Lincoln had kind of an interesting response. Um, basically, well, I'll just read a quote, a short quote. In our respective parts yesterday, you could not have been excused to make a short address, nor I a long one. I'm pleased to know that you, in your judgment, the little that I did say was not entirely a failure. I don't know. Just nice little humility by Lincoln. Just kind of a cute little, not cute, that's not the right word. I don't know. Just a very, like, honest, simple kind of response. Endearing. Endearing. That's the word. Nice. I like, I'm reading your notes here, uh, the second contrast point. Lincoln bypassed the argument and, uh, well, I guess I first have to read this point. Uh, Everest focused on dismantling arguments of the Confederacy and was sharply critical of politics opposing the Union cause. Lincoln bypassed the argument and assumed the convictions of the Union were correct, noble, and worth fighting for. He focused on transcendent, transcendental principles and looked beyond historical particulars. Yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. It sounds like... Um, it just sounds like something melancholic would say, like, shut up with your, you know, bantering about little details. This is just simply how it is, and don't make any drama of it. Um, hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, by now, your whiskey class glass is probably getting a little low, and we have a message from our sponsors. Tullamardu! The whiskey that you need on your own speech nights. Get it at your local tavern for $59.99. Get it for your sweetheart for Valentine's Day. Get it for your bros on your biannual campout here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not cheap to make this show. So, please, run, don't walk. To your favorite liquor store and buy the biggest bottle to Lamar do that your credit card can muster. <laughs> Thank you, Tullamar Do, for sponsoring this episode. And Matt, we're back to Edmund Everett. And you're welcome, Tullamar Do, for that free advertising. To my knowledge, they actually haven't paid us anything. <laughs> and now that we've hyped up an Irish whiskey, let's talk about the importance of the Civil War in the United States of America. Um, well, the, the last note about, well, it isn't so much about Adam, uh, or Edward Everett, but more or less the immediate interpretation and, uh, reception of Lincoln's speech. Um, uh, it's just interesting that, that pretty much, like, the, the reception was very much along partisan lines, um, which is something I think we can all relate to today. Um, interesting quote from the Chicago Times. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to the intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. Um, yeah, a few other 
Oh, yeah, there, there's another paper in Massachusetts that called it, quote, deep in feeling, compact in thought and expression, and tasteful and elegant in every word and comma. Um, but, yeah, there have been a, a number of newspapers that have since retracted their initial uh, condemnation of the speech as of poor quality, uh, which is just kind of interesting that, I don't know, I guess maybe it speaks to modern times a little bit that it's not the only time in history where people are kind of divided and, React poorly to to the history of things, you know. Do you know I think it's, when uh, they issued that retraction? Um, I don't know the exact date. Um, it says the sesquicentennial. Uh, is that seventy five years after, or I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Well, if it's centennial, then it's 100, at least 100. I believe that's 150, 150 years. I did Google it. So, modern times. Yeah, it's interesting. And which paper said the really mean thing again? That was was the the Chicago Times. I don't know if that's now the Chicago Sun-Times or... Okay, that's where I heard it. Okay. Um, So, my question then for you guys is, why, if Lincoln gives a speech, it's a couple minutes long, in the middle of a career where he gave tons of famous speeches, like we've done what, like 20 speeches, 25 in our podcast at this point. Why is this the only one that I've heard? Like to the normal person, if I say, Oh, J- John F. Kennedy's, we choose to go to the moon speech. They're not going to just like spit it out. Right. Or some of the other ones you've given, like what, a, like why is the Gettysburg address? I mean, he gave tons of speeches. We fought a lot of wars, not to obviously minimize the civil war, but like, why does everyone in America know exactly what you're talking about when you say the Gettysburg Address? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, it's like my mom says. It's never just one thing. I mean, I think part of it is because it is short. So, you know, you remember one line of it that sticks out to you, and that's, you know, 10% of the speech. Um I mean, obviously, the historical significance. Yeah, it's a transition point, as we've kind of reminded ourselves between the U.S. sort of having to uh, come from behind, in a sense, in order to take back uh, our country. Um, I don't know. That was a couple of my thoughts. Matt? I think... I think a good part of it is just the person Lincoln is and the person and the role he played in America. Um, just one, I mean, managing our country through, I mean, the biggest crisis it's ever faced. Um, two, I mean, emancipating slaves and being a, um, a political figure, like kind of the, the main political figure in, in the abolition of slavery. Um, I mean, I think all of that adds a lot of context, more so than just, I think, simply the word. Certainly, it's like very powerful speech, um, definitely like captures the grandeur and transcendence of like this battle and the significance um, of the war itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say it probably has more to do with Lincoln himself. Um, if a different president gave a similarly worded speech in a moment that wasn't as big like, I don't know if it would be remembered as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say it's definitely the man in the, the circumstance, I think, that make this really profound. Yeah, I just, I feel like 
of what we're trying, it seems like what we're, like what we're trying to capture here with speech night is like, how did these speeches, like, we're not just trying to look at the history of, like, we're not just trying to look at the history of like, oh, what speech did this president give in this year? And, you know, what did that mean for the political scene at the time? Like, we're just not trying to write a history book, right? But we're also, like, we're trying to look at these speeches that had an impact on people and maybe what we can glean from it today. And I, I don't know, it just seems like of all the ones we've done so far, this one might be the the one that sticks out the most, at least to me. Um, and I don't know, I just think it's hard to articulate, but like, I think it's I get, uh, powerful, I guess, like the, just what backs up the speech. Like, I mean, the line, like, right, what he says, like, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggle here have consecrated it. Like, I don't know, like you listen to a political speech by a president or something like a lot of times I think they're dealing in, you know, they're kind of dealing in ideas or thoughts. So oh, this would work. This wouldn't work. But like, I mean, Lincoln speaks literally alludes to it. Like it's the the people who literally fought and died for the cause that makes it powerful, I think, too. One thing I think that he does well, I think he connects the dead and honors the dead, but also brings into um, kind of stirs up the living, you know, mm-hmm. just about like we're carrying forward uh, the great task that remains before it. You know, like he doesn't use those exact words. It's kind of paraphrasing. But um, but yeah, like, yeah, we should take increased devotion to the cause. You know, we should take increased devotion to um, everything that America is. And, um, and gosh, it really is such a cool thought that, where does he say it? That, you know, the civil war is testing that whether, whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure just because like America is such a big experiment, you know, and we are less than a hundred years in, and it's like, shoot, maybe this is it, you know, um, maybe this is the end of that democracy and that, um, yeah, everything that the founding fathers thought would, would be these kind of eternal principles. Um, so yeah, I just think the, the connection be, you know, between the dead, the living and like the eternal principles and like all of the, the transcendent, um, yeah, the transcendent, I don't know, factors or meaning behind, the battle, I, yeah, I think he just brings it out really well. Yeah, I mean, like, looking at it again, and well said, Matt, but, like, just the last sentence, like, when he says the, like you said, like, to, to honors and remembers the dead, but to kind of, like, call make a call to the living, like, those of us that are still here, like, I mean, that last sentence, you know, um, you know, they gave the last full measure of devotion, devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth freedom and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish in the earth. Like, maybe it's too romantic of me, but like when I hear that, like thinking about like, yeah, these dead shall not have died in vain. Like it just kind of makes you want to stand up and be like, yeah, let's, let's go. Um, which is interesting because one of the, you know, one of the theories or thoughts about like Lee invading the North was to try to demoralize the North. You know, he had the, kind of the the morale there was high morale in the south of the time after chancellorsville and they had this big strong army and lee was this invincible general and blah 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 but yet you know lincoln's words there at least now and i don't know like you said it was maybe not 
quite as universally accepted at the time, but seemed to be a rallying cry for the those of them still behind. So how do we take up the mantle? How do we answer Lincoln's call to preserve the Union? Hey, is that the finishing question? Are you taking my finishing question? Is that the finishing two. question? I didn't hear it. I didn't see it written. Well, I was, I was, no, I was trying to think of one, but that's good oh. enough. But if we, if I think of another one, we can use that, but. Okay. That works. We can, we can run with that a little bit, see what happens. How do we answer the call of Lincoln's Gettysburg address to honor those who died there? Uh, I can think of a couple of different branches we can sort of run with based off of that question. Um, Confederate monuments. Is that a way to honor the lives that were lost at Gettysburg and uh, the Civil War in general? What do you guys think? Not to get too political here, Mike. <laughs> hey, it was Matt's question. I think that's actually a hard question, personally, because I honestly, like, I get the fact that, like, at least how you posed it here. So not just jumping into the political thought of, you know, the last couple years of, you know, tearing down statues and things, but, like, on one hand, like, yeah, I get that the, totally that, you know, the South, the Civil War was lar- a huge part of it was slavery. So, like, why in the world would you honor the people who fought for slavery? It doesn't make any sense. But then at the same time, like, when you look at, like, American death tools during the Civil War, like, it includes the South. It's like, if you wanted to, you know, so, um, like, they were also, like, the people who died from the South, like, were Americans. Um, so it's an interesting thing, like, our... What to do about, and I guess maybe it's different when you're talking about the generals and the leaders, but like, you know, the, and I guess these people don't have statues, so maybe it doesn't answer the question well, but like, how should we think about the southerner, just the random people that got pulled into it, you know, um, like, should we honor them? Do they deserve it? Like, were they bad guys and traitors, or were they just, you know, Americans? Um, so, I, maybe it's kind of bouncing it, but I feel like that's a difficult question. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can forget the past, and I don't know that every monument is necessarily a um, an approval of everything that every person did and supported. Um, so in that sense, like, yeah, why not leave them up, like, remember, whatever. But at the same time, like, I could see it being like, yeah, that's kind of a disturbing thing to have in a public square, you know, especially um, – yeah, in a world where there's still like racial disparity, in a world where there's still, um, yeah, racists out there, um, and like how that, um, yeah, I mean those have been a rallying the, those people and the, the you know the Confederate imagery, um, like still is a rallying cry for evil, uh, in some circles. Um, so yeah, I could see like taking them out of public places, like that seems like it might be a, a I would be fine. Like, I guess that wouldn't bother me, but. Um, I don't know if you throw them in a museum where people can remember like, okay, like this isn't, this is not a good part of our past, but it's something we need to, uh, yeah, something we need to remember, you know, cause this, this is a real thing and this is a real phase in uh, American history. Um, 
I don't know. I guess that to me that seems reasonable. So we said the first rebel monument went up in Gettysburg. And according to the quote here we have in the notes, immediately Union veterans denounced and opposed it as disgracing their service. Just an interesting little tidbit. Yeah. Yeah, that was the tidbit that I had uh, discovered there. Found found was pretty interesting. I mean, I think that this the Confederate monument question is it has a few different layers that can be worth uh, thinking through. I think that often today, so maybe we can start sort of modern day. Modern day keeping Confederate monuments up, it can sort of be a little bit of a um, signaling by conservatives to, yeah, you know, remember past, you know, that's that's just how things, that's how things were, that's not how they are now, but, you know, that's where they're at. Um, so that, that's sort of like one layer to it. The, another layer, of course, is seeing them as symbols of, you know, sort of celebrating not necessarily celebrating slavery, but celebrating something that obviously stood for slavery. Um, and then another, I'd say the third layer is the sort of lost cause sort of sentiment. Where, you know, I think... There's a reality, of course, that the South did lose something other than slavery. Um, they did sort of lose their their culture. That's not obviously not to say that, of course, that like, um, oh boy, it'd been better if they won or something like that or what. You know, things things happened the way they did, and it was good. Um, it's good that the South lost, but. There are, there are externalities to everything. And, you know, their economy, well, not exactly rightly or wrongly, it was definitely wrongly, but there, there was, there were families and lives that were built on slavery society. So when you remove slaves, there's just this utter destabilization of a society that people, want to remember in a positive way. It's hard to fault them for that. Um, there, I, and I think that that's sort of where the sort of sentiment for these Confederate monuments comes from in the most sort of like sincere way. So, I don't know. Before I keep rambling, what, what do you guys think of some I of think, those uh, thoughts or layers? Yeah, Real quick. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. That was probably the most, I don't know. I, so, I, I've i interacted with a number of Southerners who are very vitriolic, even towards Lincoln in some degrees. Um, not in, like, a pro-slavery way, but, I, you know, just for other things. And they mentioned habeas corpus whatnot. But, Mike, I just, that was a really good 
that was probably the clearest explanation of everything that they've said that Southerners have mentioned about like the culture and like just things that I've ever heard. And that was interesting coming from a Yankee. So I don't know. That was really good, Mike. So couple, couple of thoughts I had. So first of all, I'm just going to do it. We shouldn't podcast scared. So any of you guys listening that are trying to start a podcast someday, never podcast scared. I don't want anyone to think we're dancing around the question. It's complicated. It's hard. But if I'm a politician, it's like, hey, Ross, you have to vote here. Yeah, it's hard and complex, and there's layers. But, like, did the statues come down or stay up? I think I'd vote take them down. Reason being, I think you can't – like, I'm not saying Robert E. Lee's evil, and I get that George Washington had slaves. But when you put up a statue of George Washington, you're not trying to say, oh, yeah, he had slaves. You're trying to put him up as the leader of – like, the leader that got our country started. And I feel like too much of the sentiment around the South, that's where it'd be. So anyway, that's my, if I had to pick, that's where I'd go. But to kind of jump more into what Mike said and his thoughts about, you know, Matt's question about, so how do we take up the call of Lincoln? I think maybe it says something about the the beauty of the speech is just how many ways you can take it. So like I feel like a lot of people would read this and come up to a very different answer. So If you're looking at, I mean, a huge point, uh, I mean, I would say, honestly, maybe the largest point of the North was to keep the Union together, right? So Lincoln, even himself, wasn't this, you know, always just pro, we have to end slavery right now person. But, like, keeping the the, the United States together was such a huge part of the war. Like, yeah, like, we kept the United States together. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts. So, in a lot of ways, we did honor the cause that they took up. But at the same time, like someone else, I think could look at it and say, well, yeah, but like clearly slavery was a huge part of the civil war. So, you know, to saying these men have not, will not have died in vain. And yet, you know, 150 some years later, we still have racial disparities. You know, maybe we haven't done the best job um, in taking up the call of Lincoln. So anyway, I just think that that's part of the, the beauty of the speech. And I guess, not to take away from Mike's eloquent discussion about why, you know, maybe the Southern pride still exists even outside of slavery. But I think those are all just interesting thoughts about a very short speech. Another one more thought I had. So not I had, I stole from someone like, I mean, say the South wins the war. Like, they would have ended slavery eventually, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, you know, I asked this question um, to the guy giving tours at Lincoln's house at some point. Well, I asked a similar question. Um, It was, if the Civil War had not happened... When would slavery have ended? And he said something like, mm, probably like 1900 or so, because he referenced something like economic conditions, you know, that would have fostered the end of slavery. Because um, like multiple European powers had already ended slavery before the Civil War, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. But it's not I mean, like, like we were like the first ones that had the idea that like, hey, we shouldn't have slaves. Yeah, I mean, it's like late 1700s that Britain ended slavery, so you have to assume something similar for the other European countries. Yeah. Oh, I mean, slavery obviously exists in other countries today, not in developed countries, but I don't know. I mean, does slavery still, I mean, 
I think it exists more than we, as with a lot of things, so sort of has to sort of go undercover. Now, I don't know how you exactly make a bunch of African Americans picking cotton before you go undercover. Okay, here's my quick. I mean, it happens. Answer. It happens in like weird industries like sex slavery and you know drug yeah. mules. I and doubt whatever. it still exists in the way it did then. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to like literally look up every country's constitution, but like if a country literally was like, yeah, you can buy and sell people, I'm pretty sure we would have gotten into war with them by now. <laughs> the UN would have put a kibosh on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I guess, I guess my most logical, short, quick answer is an, once a new technology, Okay, let's say a new technology would have come up in 1900 that would have made human picking of cotton unnecessary. Then what would the relationship of African Americans to modern society and Southern society look like? Uh, That's an interesting sort of question to think about. Yeah. All right, so we talked a little bit, like, general like politicky so like oh what like how can we take up the cause like these are the things that happen what are your what are like your guys is more like personal thoughts like you read the gettysburg address is it like oh yeah i read that in school does it actually get you kind of excited does it make you think about anything in particular You guys sound like the Chicago Times right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess obviously the natural sort of come away here is, yeah, I mean, how how do we, just being real, um, how do we um, navigate away from racist sort of, oh, actually, here's here's a good little bit that I think is relevant and... uh, I took it a wholly different way. See, the complexity of this speech is huge. Yeah, okay. You said obviously, and I was thinking it's been totally different. <laughs> um, there was okay. So where I'm going with this thought, just to be clear, is yeah, yeah. How do how do we how do we be good anti-racist, but not in the traditional sense of that term today? Um, I was I, I watch a few Key and Peele videos. Sort of, sort of what I do. And there was this one, this one video I watched very recently. It was almost less like being funny and sort of just being, obviously there are oftentimes a little bit of a balance between social commentary and humor. Um, uh, Key and Peele's comedy videos, folks, for, uh, or folks calling in right now. Oh, it's cool to use Key and Peele. Um, and, and there's, there's this video, uh, it's, it's one of the comedians. Jordan Peele, I think. Um, and he's pretending to be uh, a black guy walking through a subdivision full of a bunch of white people. And, like, there's white kids, you know, playing outside. And and he walks past this house. And the, the mom, like, opens the door. And, like, she sees this black guy walking down the street and, you know, she, like, tells her kids to come in, and there's a, 
a cop who pulls, starts pulling up next to him and Jordan Peele's character flips his hood up and there's this sort of weird graphic. Um, there wasn't a really easy way to do it though, but there's this graphic at the end of the video like, oh well, the black kid puts his hood up because now the cop is going to think that it's just a white kid or something like that. So, like I said, yeah, it's not really that funny of a video. It's more just social commentary. But sort of my, like, thoughts, I was thinking about this when I was walking this evening. And I've heard Jordan Peele use the term microaggressions, which I'm sure you guys have heard about. But, you know, our listeners as well, being intellectual people, of course. And I wondered, like, is this considered, like, a microaggression in... Jordan Peele's perspective. And I mean, I, I, I could see where he was coming from that. Yeah. Okay. I sure, sure. You can apply that word to that. But how I think of it is, is that I don't think of that as aggression. That's just people being like idiots. And I mean that in like a very specific way because it's, it's this guy, it's the black guy walking down the street. Yeah, it's a little bit out of place because these people, it's, it's mostly white neighbors, so you can't blame them. Oh, there's, there's someone who looks different. Now, a rational person says, oh, someone looks different. Oh, but there's really nothing to think anything of. They're, they're just walking down the street with hoodie. Okay, what's well, hot day? That's a little weird, but whatever. That's it. That is a rational line of thought, right? But white people, we're nerds. We are uptight. That is our standard MO. And sadly, that is what a lot of white people do when they see something, someone that's unfamiliar to them. I don't know. So... How do I fight right racism? By just acting normal around people who look different than me. I don't know. That, that's sort of my bit. A little bit rambling, but a little bit pertinent and, you know, relevant. I don't know. So. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think maybe a, a another way I've heard a similar sentiment phrase might be like so when you're kids so so there's this little um so this was a, a time I was so I was in the seminary um I was talking with this uh seminarian um and a couple other guys and this one was from Africa right so so uh, and in very very dark skin and this this other kid's family come and there's this little white blonde girl um she just comes up to him and says wow you're really black you know and this is like a three-year-old girl, you know, this comes up and says, wow, you're really black. And then he just turns to her and says, wow, you're really white. And they just smiled and laughed at each other. And I don't know, I think everyone just kind of thought it was funny. Um, I don't know. I think there's a certain um, overthinking that I could see being just as offensive to people. You know what I mean? Just being like overly cautious. And like overly, it, where it's just, you, you can't, it's hard to be like, have a natural friendship with someone when you're always like tiptoeing, you know? And when you're always, um, 
kind of second guessing everything you say. Um, that isn't to say that like there isn't a certain level of sensitivity because like obviously there is like there are a lot of sensitive issues regarding this, but um, and not that like yeah I could see certain behaviors like the white people being irrational and like t- telling their kids to walk inside you know and they're you know it, just because there's a someone with you know varying levels of melanin walking in their neighborhood um, <clears throat> you know it's uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's certain things that are certainly irritating, but I don't know. I guess it's – I heard – so Morgan Freeman at one point was asked, like, how do you end racism? And, like, his response was to stop talking about it, you know, because to some degree we're teaching kids. You, you have to teach kids that, like, there's a difference and that that difference really, really matters a lot, you know, because that little girl had no idea and she just was making an observation – and like, yeah, the adults, the seminarian, the from Africa, like, yeah, you just made a funny joke, <laughs> you know, and like everyone moved on and like had a really good time after that, you know. I like that a lot because it's like, yeah, they didn't immediately start saying like, oh, her parents must have taught her this or that. They were like, yeah, she's three years old. She said something silly. Make a joke. Let it go. Um, and like life will be better for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, sort of bring your point, Matt, and, and mine to kind of put an, another sort of point on it. It's, it's almost as if it's, there, there, I, there is something to be said for what minorities, or some, some minorities observe with these quote microaggressions. But I'm not certain that that is the right word. Sort of like what you were saying before. Because it's like the the people in this video, right, they are we, – we can acknowledge – you guys can sort of imagine the video. Um, they're, they're, they're not acting rationally, and there is something to be taught. Like their behavior is not arbitrary. Like for them to have the fullest possible life, is not to live like hypersensitive, right? I think so. You can almost maybe say is hypersensitivity like the vice that needs to be emphasized there, and that you know you can sort of then begin opening all these different boxes. It's like, okay, this person says this or this this. Why is being hypersensitive to this statement um, going to cultivate um, issues in your life? Um, one one more example. I know our podcast is running running long tonight, but I, I think it's relevant. We can cut it out if need be. But I was listening to another podcast with Michael Shermer, and I'll be really quick with this. But he went to an LGBT meeting here. And he's Michael Shermer's an atheist, but he's very big on like free speech and sort of like uh leftist extreme being against leftist extremism and such. And this LGBT group was very big on like safe spaces. And Michael Shermer sort of pushed against them a little bit, like, okay, why do you need a safe space? Um, what's you know, what what do you need to be safe from? You're on a college campus, it doesn't get any safer in that. And so what hate have you experienced? And 
they're sort of like stumbling amongst <laughs> And finally one person offers something and they're like, well, there was a guy or there was someone who was driving a truck down a street in campus and and they said, uh, well, they didn't say F, but so I don't have to edit this out later. They said, F you, faggot, or fags. And um, Michael Shermer uh, said, okay, I mean, is that it? And I don't so, I mean, apparently, like, that was more or less it. And he said, okay, well, and you got two choices to respond. You can either say F you back, or you can say nothing. That's it. You know, and so without even going into the whole LGBT stuff, like, I think that there is a, so much to be said for that people can agree upon. It's like, you are wasting your life and energy by being this hypersensitive person, but instead focusing on those fundamental pillars of living um that's you know more or less the the most effective way and you know there's obviously cost that means that yeah might have to be silent sometimes or be a little little bit uh appropriately aggressive but anyway so those, those are those are some thoughts completely unrelated well yeah so there is, I don't know if I told you guys this, there's one time, so this, I think this was March, the, the March for Life, and we can cut this out because this isn't exactly related, but me and a few other guys were walking, so we had cassocks and collars and, you know, so we looked like priests, and someone yelled from across the street, I couldn't tell who, I just heard it, but they yelled, F you effing pedophiles to us as we were walking down the street. You know, that's kind of crazy. I don't know. Like, that was the only time I've ever experienced so anything close to that. You started, you started a safe, you started a safe space group. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. To some degree, we were kind of like, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's one kind of feistier guy among us who was just like, if you, you know, just, he said under his breath. So I suppose it wasn't that feisty, but you know, he, he had a, you know, he had some choice words, you know, yeah. two, nice. You know about them, but yeah, I mean, then like I don't know, we were kind of, uh, yeah, to some degree, we we're almost like proud of that, you know, like yeah, like we're doing something that like we believe in, and other people, yeah, have a very stru- misconstrued opinion of that, but yeah, well, I mean, I th- that is a relevant anecdote though, because it yeah, it gets to sort of the heart of thing, like what is the rash most rational human response? Well, Jesus tells us to, you know, obviously not say F you. Um, but, you know, even the other option is has some validity to it in the right circumstance. And anything else is, you know, a waste, a waste of people's people's time and, and energy. So. OK, folks, yeah. we have had a great podcast we- here. Yeah. Quick question. Can we just throw this out there? I feel like this has been a good podcast. It's a, it's longer, but I think it needed to happen. Can we hear the speech before we close again? One more time. Is that I mean, the audience we've, wants? we've never heard a speech twice. I just think we've, we read a speech. Wow. We talked about a battle. We talked about the Civil War. Give your closing thoughts. And I feel like Lincoln's words were, yeah, like, let's we can be better than Abe Lincoln That's a great here. Idea. Like, That's so a great like, idea. Mike, finish your thought. I had a thought, but I'm just going to let it go because I don't think it fit. Yeah. Finish your thought. And then, like, let 
Like, let Abe's words linger in people's minds. Okay. Well, before we finish the speech, folks, thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed your bottle of Tolomardu. First one is on us. Send us the receipt to uh, Ross's address. Forget eight. Nope, not Harwood Drive. Uh, it's a funny-sounding word. Um, next episode, what do we have to expect? We finished The Making of America. I don't know if we ever said that title, but that has been the title for these first four episodes. Next quad series, Ross doesn't like it. It's America's Growing Pains. I don't think it's the best way to say it. (laughs) Growing Pains is a mixed bag. It's positive and negative. Thank God your child is growing and not staying small forever, but there's some cost. There's some cost there. I believe we're going to have... Matt Charles Schultz leading us off here with a speech from Theodore Roosevelt. Is that correct? I believe you're right. Okay. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to hearing that. Enough for me. Let's hear this speech from Lincoln one more time. Four score. Seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived in all... <clears throat> Four score <laughs> and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, (laughs) we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work, which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that is, this nation under God God shall have have a new new earth earth of freedom. freedom. And that, that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall, shall not, not perish from, from the earth. Wow, that was beautiful, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I right. just, I just felt it. I wanted to 